Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, everyone. Nice to talk to you this week. Yeah, this gives us a little bit of, I don't know, just like a brain break, if you will, from what we are dealing with this school year. We've been hearing from a lot of you guys. So thank you for participating on our Instagram and through Facebook with your questions and concerns as we navigate through this new era, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a busy start for the school year, you know, as we've told listeners and clients, you know, we really encourage families to push for IEP meetings at the beginning of the school year, whether or not it's your, you know, you're up for your annual or not. We think it's really important to discuss what's happened the last few, last year and a half with, you know, whatever form of distance learning you had. And if you are in person, how, you know, the start of the school year has been going and most importantly, you know, looking toward making this school year, I guess, as successful as it can be, depending on what your program looks like. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that we're dealing with is, you know, some of the regression that we've seen a lot of our kiddos encounter. And I think that today's guest is going to be just so powerful for our listeners to hear when we speak about inclusion, right? So if we are all in this spot where we have had this collective trauma, right, that we're dealing with, one, Uh two, we're dealing with the regression that so many of our kiddos have had, three, how can we learn from the experience and really change the way that we approach education? And I know I've said this several times, but Amanda and I really thought that with COVID, you know, and technology, we were, you know, finally going to move away from reading, writing, arithmetic, and we were just going to turn it all around. And this is the time, this is the moment. And the push that we've just seen this academic school year is like back to business as usual. So (laughs) with that, I feel like it went from a hope of innovation to just survival, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, Diane, I would love to kind of loop you into this conversation. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Diane Rindak, and I'm a professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And there I work in the Department of Specialized Education Services, specifically in relation to students with more significant cognitive disabilities or Mm -hmm. significant disabilities overall, really. Mm-hmm. And what is so wonderful and why we're just thrilled to have you on is oftentimes those are the kiddos that are just, it's easier for the district to just label them and segregate them and just have them in one spot. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about your experience? What kind of led you to this area? Sure. And first, I, I really want to say that you are absolutely right with these are the kids who yeah. frequently are the last kids to be thought of yes. or when they when schools start to talk about uh, we're going to do this for all students. Well, we really mean all students except these. So yeah. Those are the students that I really you know, like to focus on. 
what led me to this is, I mean, early on as a teenager, actually, I had some experiences that really made me question what was happening in relation to the rights of my colleagues, mm. my peers mm. as students mm. had disabilities. And I grew up during that women's movement time, which I'm certain you're aware of. And the whole question of women's rights and civil rights, mm-hmm. and it became mm-hmm. a question for me of equal rights for individuals with disabilities, but specifically those who had the most significant disabilities who were most likely to be left out. So I came to this early and kind of shifted over the decades from initially doing being a teacher mm-hmm. with both licensure in general education and in special education, mm-hmm. but then shifting into getting my master's and starting to think about teacher education and preparing teachers to do what the research was telling us to do. So that led me into my doctorate and teacher preparation and have worked since then in from institutions when I first started into yeah. segregated schools, into segregated classes that were on regular campuses. Mm-hmm. And then eventually that has evolved into working in inclusive settings and seeing the differences in the outcomes we have been able to achieve or the students have been able to achieve when their placement has been changed. So I've kind of shifted over time into the teacher education um, part of that. And then most recently, I'm affiliated with the TIES Technical Assistance Center Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on Inclusive Practices and Policies. And that I find very exciting. I have been engaged over the, again, decades with systems that have been trying to change their services to be more inclusive and to use more frequently evidence-based practices for students with significant disabilities. And the Thai Center is really focused on trying to figure out how to do that type of sustainable systemic change within the education systems overall. So besides working with teacher preparation programs and teachers who are in the field right now, I'm also working with the Thai Center mm-hmm. with specifically our part is to work with one state and some districts within that state and schools within those districts so that we're looking at what's happening from state policy all the way down to what's happening in classrooms with kids and the impact of changing services for mm-hmm. our students. So, and then the third area that I really focus on also, I have a lot of doctoral students who are engaged in very similar work related to kids with severe disabilities. I mean, just just some amazingly necessary work there. We talk a lot about things in schools being top-down, the administrators that really set the stage for how providers and teachers operate their practices and the kind of support that they get. And, you know, if we can get, I mean, certainly teacher education is huge, right? If we can get more teachers educated and comfortable with inclusion for all of our students, not just the ones that you know, maybe have some minor challenges, but all of our students, it's huge. But, you know, even more important is the administration and the system as a whole. So, I mean, I don't see that enough. Whole districts, whole schools really striving to not just, let's learn about inclusion a little bit, but no, how can we completely restructure our program as a whole? Right. And you're right on target with that, Amanda. It's pretty frequently we'll see a school or a principal who wants to you know, look at their services and mm-hmm. try to figure out how to be more inclusive for all kids, mm-hmm. including our, the students with more significant disabilities. But it's unusual to get 
a full system that is saying we need to think about this in a holistic way and think about not just how we're changing things for the students that we have now, but for the students who are going to be coming to us over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. It's the system that needs to be looked at in addition to what is happening in classrooms with kids. So we're, we're trying to figure out and to work with systems for them to help us understand how do we change systems and then how can we take that information and help other state departments of education or other school districts take on the same type of effort and learn from what these systems have been been learning over the last few years. Right. And, you know, it's encouraging that you are, you know, working with certain districts and they are acknowledging and it's sad that it, you know, it took one person, right? Maybe the principal saying like, oh, maybe we should try this or, you know, for you to get involved. And that was going to be kind of my question. But as you were talking, you know, and kind of parceling out that, okay, well, you know, there's these systems, but what, like almost the why, right? Because it seems and maybe, you know, because to Amanda and I, it's, obvious, but that inclusion, I mean, not only do we have the research that's there, right? 20, 30 years of research about what inclusion is. When we go into these IEP meetings, it's like this wall of like, absolutely not. And, you know, we always think, is it a money issue? Is it like, you don't actually believe in this kid? You know, like, I don't think that district people wake up and say, this is how I'm going to make this kid's life like miserable. You know, maybe they're not thinking that way. But sometimes some of the decisions that they're making, it's just, it's very frustrating to us. (laughs) It feels like such a taboo word. The word inclusion In so many meetings I've been in, it seems like, you're going to bring that up? Why? (laughs) Yeah, you're right. And I do want to echo, um, Vicki, what you said about I've never met a teacher or an administrator who does not want to do good things for kids. Right. I really have never met that that, um, professional. Instead, I think our systems have been established in ways that actually make segregating our students okay and the acceptable way to do things. And I don't think that was the intent of the law. I don't think that's the intent of the Mm -hmm. current laws. Mm -hmm. And I'm not certain that administrators and teachers are thinking about it in terms of segregation. I think they're really thinking about it more in terms of, well, this must be better for the student. They get more support. They get more one-to-one attention. But when you look at the research, that's not the case. In fact, when we compared our students' engagement when they're in segregated settings or self-contained classroom or versus a general education classroom, even without a whole lot of wonderful support going on, we still find that our students are much more engaged, like 50 to 70 percent more engaged in those general education classrooms. So it's not that they're getting more support, more instruction, or more intensive instruction, especially designed instruction in the self-contained classrooms. Rather, we can take all of that and embed it within general education, and they get, as I said, 50 to 70 percent more time and instruction when they're really engaged and learning things, not just from the teachers, from the adults, but also from their peers. So the research is there. I, I just think a lot of our administrators and teachers don't know that research or Mm. haven't had the time or exposure to that research and what it really means for our students' outcomes, both short-term and long-term. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of teachers maybe haven't seen it firsthand. 
I have the benefit from early in my career seeing it work firsthand. So I can bring that to every single IEP I come to because I've seen it. I know that it works, but I don't know that every teacher has had that experience, especially general education teachers. But I, I think, you know, what I've noticed is it almost appears like it's with these segregated classes, it's like a sales pitch. And I don't know yes. who starts it, the administrators or whatnot, like kind of the way that families are told about these classrooms. You know, it's almost like they're sold that it's just such a wonderful program because it has all of these supports embedded in it. It's a low, you know, teacher to student ratio. We have small groups, everything is chunked. And it almost feels like a sales pitch, especially when you've dealt with schools where you've had multiple students get the same sales pitch at IEPs, where you start to think about it from the perspective of, yes, we have all of these already embedded in this program. But the question never arises of why can't we do the same thing in the general education class? And I feel like every time I try to bring that up, it's like I said, it's like that taboo or, you know, why are you trying to reinvent the wheel type of thing? So some of the districts that and states that we're working with now have realized that one of the issues they're facing is that the early intervention and early childhood services in a lot of cases are segregated. They're self-contained. They're, they do not include kids who do not have disabilities in their programs. Some states do have that. Some districts do have that, but a lot don't. And what we're finding is that when the IEPs are being done, transitioning kids from early childhood into kindergarten, the parents are already aware of the self-contained services that they've been receiving. And they're used to their kids being segregated. They're used to having more you know, one-to-one instruction or mm-hmm. you know, in that type of setting. So it's an easy transition for them to go into the same type of services or the same type of placement in a segregated, self-contained kindergarten for kids with disabilities. So what we're, what the systems we're working with have started to do is to say that that's where it all starts for their kids, because once they're segregated, once our kids are in self-contained settings, we know, research tells us, that 95% of the time, they never get back into general education classes. Yep. So somehow we need to figure out how do we prevent them from going into that segregated class when they're entering the school system at kindergarten. So we're now targeting working with early childhood services and with parents who have whose kids are transitioning to kindergarten the next year. How do we start working with them and get them the information they need about the importance mm-hmm. of the context mm-hmm. in which their child receives services? The context drives the content that, that they're getting access to. It drives their contact with non disabled peers mm-hmm. so they can develop mm-hmm. relationships and as well as look at the instruction that happens within those peer groups. So uh, that's one of the ways that we're trying to address one barrier. So in looking at the systems, we keep trying to think about, well, this is happening, but what's the barrier that is making that happen? What's the barrier that's in place that says this is okay, but right. it's not okay? Right. So in doing that, then we're trying to come up with strategies to adjust those barriers. You know, Amanda and I started this podcast and, and our whole thing was, you know, we we're going to start the conversation, right? And for us, uh-huh. it's really evolved to, you know, I think for the most part, people are accepting. They accept children with special needs. 
Now we need them to understand children with special needs. And if they, I know, Logan, I agree. And it's one of those things, I know you hear Logan. And I think it's one of those things where if I was at an IEP meeting and the team was like, here's this great program. We encourage more in the special day in terms of supports and services so that eventually we can go to a mainstream classroom because I've heard this line. But they actually showed us the data from their particular program because I always ask that. How many of your kids you know, that we're in special day, fifth, sixth grade are in special day classes in junior high because you and I know and <laughs> that, you know, at times the curriculum is modified. Sometimes the teacher is only teaching to the lowest kid in the class, not necessarily all of the children in the class. And if they had their own data showing me that their early intervention and special day really actually resulted in the child not being on this track forever, that would be different. But that's never happened. <laughs> and, and I've never and, seen those dead. I'm sorry, Amanda. Yeah, I haven't. I've never seen that either. And where I think we find so much of the challenge is that early intervention programs, you know, we're getting kids identified and put on IEPs at three, but we do not have universal preschool. So, so mm. many of these school districts do not have general education preschool. And so if a parent is going to receive services from three to five before they enter kindergarten, their options are limited. They're only given, well, we have this special day class or we have this speech and language center. And the only option for general education preschool is for the parents to fund it themselves. Mm-hmm. And while we have a lot of parents that go and say, okay, I'm taking your IEP offer, you know, I'll take these services, but I don't want to put my kid in special day class, so I'm going to privately place. But not everyone has the funds to fund preschool. And if you're given this option of here's a free preschool for your child and you're getting a skills pitch of, we're going to prepare you for dinner kindergarten and we're going to give you all these services. I don't know how a parent can, you know, not say yes to that. There's no right. other option. Right. You're exactly right. So, and that's why we're trying to target what is one strategy is, is to get those parents the information they need. Yeah. So, I mean, if their if their child is in that day program, it's like, what do they need to know? before they start talking about their child entering kindergarten and making decisions about their placement. The other another strategy that one of the some of the districts that we're working with have taken on on a systemic basis is to say that, look, if you have a student who is not 80% or more of the day in general education, mm-hmm. not only is it enough for you to say, well, this is why, the real issue is if there's a reason why they're not in general education settings, what is it that you're addressing in terms of IEP goals and mm. services mm. that will make that student ready, help that student be ready, if that's what you're saying, for the next year? And if you're not addressing that need, then you can't really say this is what is keeping the student out of that general education placement. So they're trying to, to on a system-wide basis, put into practice the questions and the logic, but also the strategies for addressing whatever people are saying is the reason the student cannot be fully included with their peers, which I think is will also help with the discussions. The teachers really want to do good things. They just don't have the structure, I believe. They yeah. don't have the, the knowledge yeah. or they don't have the structure in place to help them change the system. So I think the systems need to figure out how to help the teachers do that. In a better way. Yeah, the structure and the support. I mean, 
especially if we're talking about our students with more substantial needs. A general education teacher alone cannot do all of that. I mean, they don't even have a special education credential where they can modify the curriculum to the extent that it may be necessary. And so, you know, we do see school districts that are willing, okay, we're going to put this child in for this subject or this time of day for some mainstreaming, maybe we'll start increasing it. But the work that needs to be done on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, to modify the work, to provide the teacher with that support, you know, it's not just aid support. It's not just, well, I'm just going to throw an aid in this classroom. If the work isn't to their level, then, you know, the district's argument of, well, they're in an island of one, right, becomes true because we're not even trying. So I think it's that support that is really needed, collaboration with the team. Absolutely. And to do that, I mean, we're really, we really need to address it at, at two different ways. For the teachers who are already out there, trying to figure out how to do professional development, and we're doing more technical assistance with coaching okay. and helping establish networks of coaches within districts so that the district has somebody with the expertise who can help the teachers develop the skills they need and use the skills to co-plan co-teach, um, co-implement, and co-evaluate instruction okay. with general education, special education, um, related services personnel, anybody that is needed to provide the supports the student needs to be successful in that general education classroom. So we're looking at what do we know about how do we change adults' behaviors mm-hmm. um, through professional development. And it's not sufficient to do workshops, now go do this. It doesn't work. Right. We know that doesn't work. The right. research says it doesn't work. Yeah. It hasn't changed the systems. So how do we instead think about providing information to teachers, both mm-hmm. general ed and special mm-hmm. ed, and to administrators, but then provide them the coaching and the support so they can then take use that information within their own systems and then figure out how to have their system um, change so that it can be not just implemented in an ongoing basis for the students we're talking about, but for all students who are going to be coming through in the future. So there's that, how do we work with existing teachers and administrators to change their practice? But then on the other hand, we also have to look at the teacher preparation programs, general education, whether it's elementary, middle school, high school teachers, all the special education teachers, how do we work with them so that they are ready to co-plan, co-implement, and Mm co-evaluate instruction with these other um, teachers, special education teachers, related service personnel, and so forth. So we have to hit both of those types of of services. So again, it's what are the barriers, and then how do we break down those barriers so that the people who are implementing services have what they need Mm -hmm. to do it and to do it well for Mm -hmm. all kids? including the kids with severe disabilities. Absolutely. And that you kind of led me to, you know, if we have teachers or administrators that are listening to our podcast and they want more information or resources, do you have, how can they contact you? Where can they find these resources? (laughs) So two things, they can reach me through my email Mm -hmm. and my email is dlrindak. It's um, D-L-R-Y-N-D-A-K at uncg.edu. Please give me time to respond, though. I'm not always because I'm out a lot, so it takes me a while to respond. Or if you go to the URL, the website for the TIES Center, it's T-I-E-S-C-E-N-T-E-R dot org. 
There are all kinds of resources on our website um, related to inclusive education, specifically for students with significant disabilities, but also looking at how do you change a system and what do we know like through implementation science and how do we use what we know from implementation science related to changing systems within educational systems themselves. So there are a lot of resources for administrators, for teachers, for parents. There are videos for parents, what you can be doing to help your child at home related to writing and math and science. There are things about IEP development, but how do you put all of that together so that it supports placement in general education settings, and then instruction on um, general education standards with the supports and accommodations modifications needed. So there's all kinds of resources there. So reach out to us. Yeah, so grateful to have people like you doing this work because, you know, man and I can only, you know, handle one case at a time. And, and the purpose behind the podcast is to start these conversations and provide people these resources, but ultimately to try and empower everyone, not just parents of children with special needs, parents in general, administrators, mm-hmm. school staff, like the change starts with you and there are people out there yep. already doing the work. We just got to connect everyone. <laughs> so we Absolutely. can kind of rise up. And there really is a strong network of people um, nationally who, who yeah. can, can support. So I might not have the answers or I might not be able to support you, but I will certainly try to link people, connect people to, to somebody in their state or close by that they could um, also tap. You can have so many wonderful people in California who are doing some, mm-hmm. some really nice things too. Mm-hmm. So, and I know you know them because they know you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yes, there are definitely so many amazing people out there, resources out there. And we hope that not, you know, cause we know a lot of parents who reach out to so many organizations. So we hope that teachers, administrators, if you work for a school or a school board, reach out, see what you can do to make a change. We have so much work to do, but you know, some great people are out there doing it, but we just, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing, like we said, and for being here to kind of talk to us, having this great conversation. No, this is my honor. I, I'm really thrilled to be on your podcast. It's a way to reach a lot of people. And I'm very glad you mentioned school boards. We also did mm-hmm. men- mention superintendents. They are critical to this. It cannot be done without the full system um, taking it on and doing it well. So thank you for everything. Absolutely. Today. It's great. Thank Hold you, Diane. We'll include all of information, the website, everything in our show notes for our listeners to go check out. And we hope that you guys have a great rest of your week and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.